0: You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12 education disruption and has deep-dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla.
1: Welcome to Schooled. I'm your host, Carla Hulse, and today my guest is Deborah Watkins, a former teacher, Counselor and project manager in the East Side Union High School District in San Jose, California. Deborah is also a founding member of the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators, where she served as their president. Deborah also founded the California Alliance of African American Educators, or CAAE, and she's the founder of the Dr. Frank S. Green Scholars Program. And as if that isn't enough, in 2015, Deborah was one of the founders of Black Students of California United. And in 2017, Deborah officially changed the name of the CAAE to a Black Education Network, where she currently serves as the Executive Director and Founder. All right, so welcome to school, Deborah. It's so great to have you today. Thank you. I'm just honored to be here, Carla. <laughs> so to be perfectly honest, I cannot believe that it took a dear friend of mine and also a dear friend of yours, Pierre Pennick, to get us together because you have been working in and around the Bay Area and specifically San Jose and Santa Clara Counties forever. And I've been in the California area, in particular, the Bay Area for a decade, and we never seemed to quite run into each other. So it's kind of strange that we're just now in 2022 getting connected. So um, again, it's a pleasure to have you here.
0: Well, I believe in divine appointments, and I think (laughs) ancestors
1: said it's time for you to meet Carla. (laughs) Yeah, must have been. Because like I was saying, you've been in the Bay Area for... Forty-five Many years. years. <laughs> I was 45. gonna give it, I was gonna throw a number out there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: for, so I went to Stanford for graduate school, um straight uh-huh. out of undergrad. Um and I uh, graduated in nineteen seventy seven, a thousand years ago.
1: Okay now and really I'm dating just,
0: yourself. <laughs> I am yeah. dating myself. And I just have loved the the Bay Area. I grew up in I was born and raised in California, uh in Southern California actually, but our family camped every year. Every mm-hmm. summer we took a camping trip somewhere. And so um, we used to come up to the Bay Area, um, and I just loved it up here. And I decided then that I wanted to live in the Bay Area. And so that's why I applied for graduate school here uh, at Stanford as well as at Columbia University and Claremont Graduate School, because uh-huh. uh, which is one of the Claremont colleges.
1: And, yeah. Um,
0: um, but, yeah, the opportunity to stay in California and be in the Bay Area was really appealing to me. So, I've been here ever since.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, how did you go from Stanford student to now running Black Education Network? How did you make that leap?
0: <laughs> yes, quite a leap. So, first yeah. of all, it's pronounced
1: it's pronounced a bin,
0: um, mm-hmm. a bin, uh, and a bin is a Songhai word from the um, people in Mali, Africa, I am this, and the word means the buck stops here or it is finished and um, when i was uh, considering uh, creating a national organization at the urging of my mentor we call her ajegna uh, dr joyce king who is you know the definitive authority as far as i'm concerned on black education in the country um -hmm. when she encouraged me to start a national organization but it all started um, when I entered the Eastside Union High School District in San Jose. It's the largest high school district in Northern California. And when I entered that district in 1977, I started teaching at a high school that was just a year old. It had opened in 1976, and it was called Independence. And Independence was an amazing school, 103 acres, um, you know, Olympic pool, a lap pool, a planetarium, a public library on the campus. Unbelievable. It wow. looked like um it looked like a college campus, um but it was actually an education park, and it was designed so that there would be no segregation um in four different high schools, so they busted kids from all over San Jose, East San Jose, into independence, so I started with a silver spoon in my mouth, okay, yeah. because independence I, I just thought everybody's school was like that, right? <laughs> so yeah. I found out many years later that that's far from the truth but it was right. the first new high school in Silicon Valley in 25 years so it was a big it was a big deal
1: yeah.
0: um, anyway when i got to independence the east side union high school district um, there was already a group of black educators and they were called black educators of east side they they were called bees for short um, uh-huh. and then in the neighboring school district black uh, there was a black educators of Alum rock schools and they were called bears for short So I was fortunate, Carla, to start teaching where there was already a support group for black educators. That's huge. That's huge. And I am confident today that I stayed in the profession for the next 37 years in that same school district because I had the support from the day one of my teaching of other veteran black educators who knew the importance of these. Um, these, like, social groups, right, these professional yeah. groups. Um, so I joined these, and um, five years later, these and theirs joined together to become the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators. I was a founding member of that, and they were a part of the National Alliance of Black School Educators. We were a NAPSE affiliate. So now... Ah. Yes, for the next twenty years, I'm going to a NAPSI conference every. Um, well, you know, every I mean, our conferences were usually in November. Every yeah. fall, I'm at a NAPSI conference, learning from Dr. Aza Hilliard, Dr. Barbara Sizemore, Jawanza Kanjufu, Before everybody got to know who he was, we're talking yeah. over. You know, Dr. Hilliard has been. Um, he transitioned. Almost fourteen years ago, so that was you know how long ago that was, right? I did, yeah. And so, I worked
1: with I worked with Barbara here in Chicago, so I, I I it's interesting that again we've kind of been running in parallel worlds. And oh never
0: wow, ran into wow. each so other, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so Dr. Sizemore and Dr. Hilliard would always have their symposiums at NAPSI every year. Mm-hmm, so for twenty mm-hmm. years, I sat at their feet, and yeah. along with hundreds of other new young educators, excited. So Carla, I really think. That that undergirding is incredibly important. So yeah. after um, being a founding member of what we call the Alliance, um, in 1994 I became president, and I stayed on as president until 2001. Well, from 94 to 2001 we did a lot of great things with Black kids in Silicon Valley, Santa Clara County, mm-hmm. um, and so people kept saying, "Deborah, you should start a statewide organization." And, frankly, I was like, "Mm, I don't know, it's been challenging just to have a, you know, just to have a regional one. But I realized that black kids in Silicon Valley were doing much better than black kids in, say, LA Unified, Fresno Unified, Riverside, you know, San Bernardino. And so I decided to um, connect with the other Nazi affiliate presidents. Um, So we had James Taylor, president of the San School Alliance, as vice Uh president, we yeah. had Dr. Bill Ellerby as um, treasurer. We yeah. had Prinsetta Perkins, who was one of the officers in the Sacramento um, Elk Grove Alliance of Black Educators, as secretary. Then we had Roz Bassard over the Fresno, we call it the, the, the Valley region. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. She was the founder of the Valley Alliance of African American um, School Educators. Then we had um, Cliff, Dr. Cliff Thompson over the Bay Area, because um, he was over in Oakland Alliance. Um, and then we had uh, we had uh, Barbara uh, over there in charge of the Sacramento Stockton area. So the only two areas we didn't have covered, Carla, were Los Angeles and San Diego. So mm-hmm. we went and found people who live ed- black educators who lived in one lived in Los Angeles. Dr. Ann it's Is- Um And Ann was the coordinator for Los Angeles area. And Anne, um, we met through an NBCTE. I think that's what it's called. NBCTE. We National Board Certification. Certification. Something like yep. That. Yep. Yes. I asked Anne if she would become um, the regional coordinator for Los Angeles, and she agreed. So um, as and you then- go
1: through this, I'm thinking, what were you all doing that was so unique in the Bay Area where Black students were excelling? What was unique and what were you thinking you could then replicate across the state of California and then were people saying you've got to go national? So what were those very distinct things you were doing with black students that were causing them to have um, greater achievement, comparing them to their counterparts across parts across the state of California? What were you guys doing specifically? Cause I'm gonna, excellent.
0: Yeah, excellent question.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Excellent question. So um, let me just um, add uh, that we ended up picking up one other person. There was no Napsy affiliate in San Diego, so we mm-hmm. picked up um, a, a, a young man uh, in—I uh, say young man, but yeah—in in, uh, in uh, San Diego. I just want to close that out um, with yeah. him. But yeah, so a great question. Um, we were doing several things. One was I started a STEM program before it was called STEM in 1998 and Intel found out about it before we had our first science fair and said we would love to underwrite it. So Intel became the main underwriter of the Dr. George Washington Carver Scholars Program, and that program was Intel's national model for what creating what now is called a STEM pipeline should look like. That program went on for three years, and we named it the Intel Carver Scholars Program and it was amazing then so what, um
1: what happened in that program like what were kids exposed to what did teachers also maybe get exposed to so it's not it, just i think there's always so much focus on what kids are doing and not doing and we we fail to really recognize what teachers are doing or not doing or leaders are yes, doing so what was yes, happening in this in, in the in, in that first dim program so yeah
0: The main thing that was happening is parent engagement. So parent engagement is a non-negotiable in any of the programs that I run, and I run several. Um, um, So I trained the parents on how to deliver the STEM curriculum so that if somebody decided not to fund us, we could still um, maintain a program for their children. The, Mm. The Intel Carver Scholars Program started with kindergartners. And we stayed with them until they graduated. Go- the goal was to stay with them until they graduated from high school. So we became like a, a village, right, a healthy village, mm-hmm. though, mm-hmm. where we had equipped the parents on how to help us run a program for their children. With Intel as the underwriter, every one of my scholars from kindergarten to 12th grade got um, brand new, well, they got waterfall laptops, which are laptops with an old casing but brand new inner. And yeah. so every one of my kids got an, a laptop, and then Intel provided at their headquarters in Santa Clara training for the children on how to use the Microsoft suite and for the parents on how to use the suite. Oh, my gosh, the support that we got from Intel was mm-hmm. off the chain. You know, I mean, I can't even begin to check. Our science fair was underwrote by Intel. They provided all the prizes for the kids. At yeah. the high collar. we had 184 students in that program. They only met one Saturday a month for 4 hours and there was we always covered science, we always yeah. covered technology, we always covered engineering and we always covered math. Yeah. One one day a month for 4 hours is all it took for us to send 100% of our children to college. After three years, Intel wanted to take us national, but the two men were concerned that Intel, you know, might um, run off with our intellectual property, and Hmm. so they said, no, you know, we don't think so. Well, I was the school district safe. I wrote all the grants. I was the corporate safe, and I was teaching full-time still, and I was running the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators so, I had to walk away. Unfortunately, the program died in a month. Half of those parents came to me and said, "Miss Deborah, they call me Ms Deborah. Ms Deborah, you need to start another program." So twenty years ago, I started the Dr. Frank S. Green Scholars Program, and that program has been thriving for two decades. So you were asking me what kinds of things were we doing in yeah. Silicon Valley that people were saying these need to be replicated around the country?" Yeah. One of them was the STEM program, which is now twenty years old. hundred yeah. percent of our kids go to college. Ninety percent graduate in four years with their BA or BS degrees, degrees, and sixty percent of those degrees are in STEM, which is eight times the national average mm-hmm. for Black students.
1: So that's yeah. I'm my also hearing. Bit. Yeah, no, no, it's not elevator. So I'm from what I'm hearing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So it's not just one Saturday a month engaged in STEM. I also heard um mandatory and I'm using air quotes, parental involvement. Um high investment from a corporate partner to give you all of the things which sounds like mirror kind of what you experienced at Independence High School. So yes. it's it's the it's the village that kind of naturally happens in affluent communities that we write off, that we ignore, and we assume that kids are excelling just because of great singular teaching that's happening in their schools, when in fact, it's this village effect. It's parents who are able to engage with their kids beyond uh not just at home, but also engaging with them with their academics. And then it's the influx, the and I mean influx of resources that come to affluent schools. And we just kind of write yes. all that stuff off. And then when we have high poverty or very rural or I'm drawing a blank today. I'm having like a a brain fart, but our uh, um, um, Native American schools, schools on reservations, when they don't have those same resources, we're saying, well, why, why can't you just excel? Why are you still at the bottom of the, you know, the indicators in math and science and reading and social studies and attendance and dropout rates? Why is this happening? It's because, you know, all of the resources that, that are being placed in affluent communities, again, that we're writing off, have a direct connection to the successes of students, not even then considering the isms that come along with schools, um, whether it's ableism or racism or classism, that's also being placed on on students in schools. So I, I just wanted to kind of point that out, that you guys were putting together that village um, that is Obviously, happening in affluent communities. I just want to kind of make that connection, and I could be wrong. Call I mean, you could completely disagree with me. But. No,
0: no, no, Carla. Okay. you nailed it. You nailed yeah. it. And let me tell you something. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Um, Edmund Gordon. I do I, I I only met him a few years ago. My Jegna, Dr. Joyce King, was president mm-hmm. of the American Educational Research Association, um, AERA. AERA, mm-hmm. which for your for your listeners who might not know, is the largest um, higher ed research association in the world, um, 25,000 members. And yet these, um, Gloria Labson billings has been president, Carol Lee has been president, Arnitha Ball. Yep. All of these people were part of my um, wisdom circle. They've all been okay. president at some point, you know. During AERA's history, well, that year Joyce King was president, and Joyce King gave me a presidential session, which is the highest session you can get at AERA. It's where you bring in the best and the brightest researchers. And so here I was at San Francisco, uh, the San Francisco Foundation, talking to the president um, at the time. Um, I'm talking to Fred Blackwell, and I said, Fred, I want you to come to AERA and be on my, be in my presidential session. He said, Debra, I'd be honored to do that. And I want you to talk about how you, why you invested in, you know, a Triple A's work, right? work. And so Fred said, be honored, Debra. And so Fred um, said, but do you know my uncle? And I said, who's your uncle? He said, Dr. Edmund Gordon. And I was huh. embarrassed because I didn't know the man. And he said, oh, that's who you should invite because he is <laughs> related to black education and education in general. Um, yeah. Girl, as it turns out, Dr. Edmund Gordon coined the phrase compensatory education" fifty years ago yeah I went to car i went to um Dr Ball and Dr. Ball got him. So I had Dr. Edmund Gordon who coined the phrase compensatory education and who taught me through his research that we're talking about social capital. That's what you just said.
1: Social capital
0: is what you described, Carla. Correct.
1: Correct. And so
0: he writes about that in his book, Carla, you have got to get the man's book. So when he came to AERA for me, no, really, um, Dr. Carol Lee, who, with her husband, um, uh, are the, the the founders of Black Classic Press um, out of Chicago, and they run the large, they run the oldest independent black school in the country um, there um, in um, Chicago. Girl, <laughs> do you know when Dr. Gordon signed my book, he said to me that my work with my STEM program was the best example of his research he has ever seen.
1: Ah, huh. there you go. Yeah, here's
0: a man I didn't even know though, Carla. I didn't yeah. know. I'm not a re. I'm not an educator. I'm not an educational researcher. You know, yeah. I'm a practitioner. Yeah. Like I'm mm-hmm. on the ground doing the work with the children. But right. I work with the brilliant. I work with the researchers though. So the researchers are all my personal friends, and they're the mm-hmm. ones who I highlight at my in my annual Stanford Institute. Um, <laughs> and so th- they point me to the people.
1: Go back to your kind of founding Of a bin, there were you responding to something? Because again, you mentioned this ideal school setting at independence. So, yeah, you what were you why? Why even start a bin? Why even start the Frank? So, Green so let me tell you, program? okay, so after running
0: the California, so in 2001, we launched mm-hmm. the California Alliance of African-American educators, and we knew that we had struck a chord, Carla, because within five years we had a 1,000 members statewide.
1: Listening to the the kind of spreading of the seed, right, many, many people coming together, doing this work over time. And as you know, because you've been in education, you've been in K-12 education for decades, I'm just trying to understand if you all – what was your way maybe of kind of tackling the in, the inequities, right? Because it's so vast and there's so many layers to this, right? There's the federal government's role, there's state departments of ed, and in many states there are either counties or these kind of regional offices of education. Then there's the district itself. And then there are these kind of professional organizations which you're speaking to, um, then there are organizations that I've worked in, like the American Institutes for Research or um Pivot. all of these folks are kind of swimming in this pool of k twelve education, swimming around each other, bumping into each other. So did you guys kind of take that into consideration when you were doing your work and saying how do we how do we untangle this to make it better for students of color, or was on it that not even a conversation? were you guys just like single minded we're really just going to carve out this slice and see what we can do in our lane. Does that question yeah, make sense? Yeah, that,
0: and that, thank you. That's a better, so, you know, all of our work has been outside the white gaze, right? Yeah. So the, the uh, then board members are all black. Our team members are all black. Our wisdom circle is all, everybody's black. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there is, we have a lot of allies, right? We have white people yes. who get our work, and they fund us. We've raised, I've raised millions of dollars for a bin over the mm-hmm. past, I mean, for, you know, between the California Alliance and a bin over the past 20 years, right? So mm-hmm. we've worked outside the white gaze. And what I mean by that, you know, from Toni Morrison's description, is yes. that we've never had white people inform how we serve black people and black children and their families. So we've always relied on each other, right, the brilliance of black scholars. That's why I created the Summer Institute, you know, in partnership with Linda Darley Hammond. Cre-
1: yeah. Linda
0: had just gotten to Stanford 20 years ago, um, well, maybe 23 <laughs> years ago. I picked up the phone, Carla, and called Dr. Linda Darley Hammond and said, I just started the California Alliance of African-American Educators, and it's the teacher, stupid. We need to train teachers on how to work successfully with black children. Because yes. if you don't t- change teacher practice, you will Correct. never change the children. You'll never now change opportunity Now you're speaking my language, Deborah. But if you don't change the teacher practice, you will never change opportunity for any children, not just black any kids. Children.
1: Yes, any
0: children. children, period, dot. You know, I know I'm saying a lot of different things, but you trigger a lot of great thoughts in my head. You know. No, you really do. I mean it's like you made me think about Linda's pivotal role. You know, yeah, Linda said, Deborah, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, she just gotten five million dollars two years earlier from the Gates Foundation and Linda yeah. was over the school redesign network at Stanford and she said, We can just put your institute right on under here. You know, yeah. and Linda underwrote the institute for the first three years, Carla. And what I mean by underwriting is she paid for the speakers and she got us a, a place on the Stanford
1: campus. So- so let's let's talk about because this has really been the focus of all of my podcasts this year. It's really the the aftermath of COVID nineteen. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put an image in your head. So follow with me. Last summer I was in some Zoom conference and one of the attendees shared this political cartoon, and it has a group of adults sitting in an office building, or it could be in a school building, just kind of going about their meeting. And outside the window of this school or office building is a gigantic, I would say, kind of bulldozer coming at the school, and that bulldozer is labeled COVID-19. So unbeknownst to these adults, something is going to come in and mash them apart. And I think I thought, I naively thought COVID-19 was going to do it. It was going to shake K-12 education up. And it was going to open up avenues to really, and I've been calling for this, the dismantling of the traditional K 12 public education system as we know it. And for me, that dismantling is not just at the school door. It's doing something or getting rid of the US Department of Ed. It's doing something or getting rid of all these state departments of Ed. I mean, there's just these bloated bureaucracies that really don't have teeth. Bloated
0: bureau. Right.
1: Yeah. And then these, you know, county offices and these regional offices and then these school boards. I was like, this is going to be it. Right. And so it started, right. We had this kind of racial awakening that started. To yes. cool up. But then this weird kind of like schooling with um, school board meetings got it really heated and not in the way that I thought they were going to get heated. And then this kind of homeschooling heated up a little bit and then funds came from the federal government and then really nothing happened. So in my mind, the dismantling didn't happen. People are rushing to get back to normal. So now what, Deborah? Like, what? What should we be doing? What does post-COVID schooling look like, or what could we be doing? Because I don't see anything happening. And maybe you I'm know what. Risking-
0: no, I'm no, Carla. That. I'm so glad you you asked the best questions <laughs> you, did, you asked the best questions um because so, 'cause I've you know obviously, if I've been in the field for forty five years, I've done a lot of yes. thinking about yeah. you know all the uh, all of the things. but let me say that I decided early on to work outside of the system because the okay. system was clearly arrayed against black children. It was clear i I saw that from my first year of teaching at independence. Because my specialty was always college prep juniors and seniors from the beginning mm-hmm. of my teaching career, always college prep juniors and seniors, and I had you could count the, the number of black students on one hand in all of my you know classes. You I'd have two say freshman classes, not college bound, but just regular you know mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd have the college bound kids in the juniors and the senior in the junior senior level. You could count the black kids in my junior and senior classes, right?
1: And I or students, of color. I mean, or, or students with disabilities. I'm
0: sure those were. But mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. that's a whole other level of, you know, like yes. ableism. So I knew then there's there's something was wrong with the system. But you have to understand, I came. From an all-white system, right? So all of my teachers from K to 12 were white. But I love school. And so that Eurocentric frame, it worked for me, Carla. It did mm-hmm. not work for my brother behind me. And they ter- those same teachers who loved me, they terrorized my brother. And my oh. brother was traumatized from kindergarten until tenth grade when a teacher, a white teacher, called him the N word. He threw a desk at that teacher. That my brother was expelled from the district for felony. And my mother was a, a prison warden, so we definitely didn't play that, you know. Oh, my. But my brother had had it. He had had it. My brother was probably the smart. My mother had ten kids. He was probably the smartest of my mother's children. But you mm. know how they demonize black men. We saw what happened yeah. to the. To Galen Walker, yeah, bullets, sixty bullets, Carla. So I, I know it's a, you know, so so I'm I'm really I'm fired up today, right? Because you know, (laughs) no, I mean I'm always I'm really feeling some kind of way today um, because this other white boy slaughtered six parade watchers and they took him into custody without incident. Now, I'm not saying that he should have been gunned down. I'm just saying why is there such – I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I won't answer (laughs) that. A disparate treatment of black people, and don't let them be black men, please. But they do black women the same way. So I'm saying – you know what somebody said? Um, I read it recently in, oh, Fugitive Pedagogy. Um, my institute was last week, my virtual institute, and yes. my one of my speakers was Dr. Jarvis Gibbons, who wrote Fugitive Pedagogy, um, Carter G. Woodson, and the Art of Black Teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fabulous book if you haven't read it. Yes, it. I Fabulous. have. Yes, I have. Okay, mm-hmm. so so Dr. Gibbons said that lynching begins in the classroom. Lynching, be- did you hear what I Lynching I begins in My the classroom. There would be black people would not be so roundly demonized if that did not start in the classroom, right? Where teachers have demonized black children right. that demonized black children since we were given since we were allowed the privilege of learning.
1: <laughs> so we're here uh, in twenty twenty two, Deborah, and unfortunately, um it is not only Caucasian teachers who are demonizing. We, we oh, are well. Black one, too. Right? We black, are all... Don't get me... St- <laughs> yeah.
0: Don't have me go there about black educators. Right. Please don't have me go there. We are
1: upholding this system as well. Don't have me go but there. The question is... Don't, no, no. What? So you
0: asked me... Okay, look, Paula, You asked me, because I know our, our podcast is almost up. You asked me what I think now post-COVID. Here's yeah, what, what I think. Do. Here's yeah. what I think. I think African-centered schools, black children only taught by conscious black people, not Negroes, okay? I'm talking conscious black people who care for black children, who love them, who do not perpetuate the same racist, oppressive system, um, you know, that they're now superintendents of, they're teachers yeah. of, they're principals of. No, yeah. do not know. I don't want those schools for black children anymore. Okay, if they can't go to an African-centered school, I want them to be homeschooled in an African-centered oh. homeschool environment. Those are my only two options nowadays, okay? Oh my oh, my th- I'm sorry, my third, no, wait, wait. My third option is that every black kid gets put in a program like mine, right? That's every perfect. black kid who has to go to public school gets put into a Green Scholar STEM program or some mm-hmm. other kind of program like mine that builds their social capital. That elevates their brilliance. Those are my three options That's right
1: interesting. now. Interesting. Okay. So because, you know, I've been saying that post-COVID has really three buckets. There's this kind of racial awakening, and you're saying that racial awakening needs, at least in the black community, should involve the recognition that traditional schooling is not going to work for your baby. Right? No, not
0: no, not no? not business as usual. I don't even care if everybody from the janitor to the superintendent is black. Okay, if they are, if they're perp- if they're perpetuating the same oppressive, mm-hmm. non-performing kids, you know, yes. uh, results.
1: Yes, I don't mm-hmm. want black kids there either. Okay. 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 All right. So, so then you're saying, and maybe I'm wrong, but you, you can correct me, Deborah. So you're saying that the system. Of K 12 public education in America is so flawed or so intertwined with the isms from classism, racism, ableism that it can't be fixed. It can't be dismantled. So, the only way for Black children to be schooled is homeschooling and Afrocentric schools started, run by, funded by maybe Black people. Listen, philanthropy
0: is the last bastion of white supremacy. Philanthropy is. Most philanthropists are not funding liberatory education. And so we have to find black people with means to fund liberatory education.
1: Okay, okay.
0: It's okay. not coming no, from philanthropy. Hear, yeah. Oh, no, I get not that. From, I not, not, that. Not in the millions that is needed. We're talking billions. Billions yeah. are needed. From, we need billions of philanthropic, philanthropic dollars to okay. shore up African centered schools, and it ain't happening on my watch. And so, we just, I mean, it, okay. it, it just, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, okay? okay? And so, yes, if we could cultivate conscious black and get Mm -hmm. them to pour into these African-centered schools, that's my ideal. Interesting.
1: And then in the meantime, what do we do, right? In the meantime, we create, we
0: replicate the Green Scholars Program around the country, which is what I am now in the process
1: of doing. Okay. Interesting. And so, and then we just ignore the bigger system and just say, we recognize it doesn't work. So we're going to kind of stop. Si- no, them. no, Carla.
0: The no. system uh-huh. is working the way it was designed. Oh, totally,
1: totally. No, I get that, but I think we. So have there's to, no. There's,
0: there's, that. You can't dismantle that. You know. Okay. You know. One of my favorite philanthropists, who will remain nameless, former constitutional lawyer. And ever since what's yeah. going on with the Constitution, yeah. the Bill of Rights, <laughs> the 27th Amendment, he's been helping me, you okay. know, um, with the Supreme Court and all mm-hmm. the decisions that are being rendered. Um, and at the end of the day, it's a machine.
1: Yeah. And
0: you cannot dismantle a machine. You can't. You can't. You know well, you, this. You can I mean we? How, how do you do? It? How do you do it? Tell me how you do it, Carla. Tell me how you <laughs> dismantle a machine
1: it t- it takes policy, I mean, look at the machine of slavery
0: right, but it, but but do you have the right politicians to they can't even ban assault weapons?
1: <laughs> I don't say we have them in office now. I'm saying because I'm. I'm oh no, I believe to... in voting. I oh,
0: believe, but that was what my I almost named. Him. That is what my 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 constitutional scholar said. He he said it's going to take a backlash. He uh, um, yes. said it's going to take a. Uh, I said, well, what is that going to look like? He said, people voting out. I should read you what he wrote. <laughs> people but I voting.
1: COVID nineteen would be the backlash, Deborah. Why isn't? Why wasn't that the backlash?
0: Um, you know the system. The monster, the machine that it is, can only be overturned um and this is what my constitutional scholar said. if the people rise up and they they elect um other people who can then can then control put, can um put the Supreme Court in check he said. Yeah. he said right yeah. now the Supreme Court is out of control. The only way you check the Supreme Court is that you have to have. The people who are not ultra conservative and ultra right, you have to have them in power of both houses and the presidency right. and the and presidency. I,
1: I think also because again, I really thought COVID nineteen would be the the great wake- equalizer. The great equalizer. Yeah. No. I, at least I thought it would wake people up to go, oh. Why would it wait,
0: wait, though? Wait, why would it wake up anybody calling one of their black and brown kids who are most negatively affected? When did this country ever care for black and brown kids? When, when, tell me a time when they cared, tell me so. a time when they cared.
1: <laughs> never, never, <laughs> never. No, but I thought, I thought because you know, you and I are a little bit older, I thought the generation below us who are. Less bifurcated. I thought they would really push for closing these gaps of inequities, saying we've got severely underfunded communities, not just schools, communities that need the funding. Yeah, so we've got we've got some work
0: to do. I found my, I found the email from my um, constitutional lawyer friend, who is my one of my major funders. Historically, the backlash has showed up in elections when the party at odds with the court wins a major victory and uses its control of Congress and the executive to put the court in its place. As Jefferson and the Republicans did to the Federalists in 1800. Jackson and the Democrats did to the Whigs in 1832. Lincoln and the Republicans did to the Democrats in 1860 and FDR and the Democrats did to the Republicans in 1936. Yeah. But the prospects for that don't look too good right now.
1: Okay. That's
0: what he said. That man You're is a t-
1: Saying that because we don't have the right people in power?
0: Exactly.
1: Okay. I know. So that gets me to so, so now what's our future going to be? And I'm just focusing in on public education. So saying, future, I'm going to yeah, tell you what my future,
0: my future in public education is to continue to create the kind of children have come through my program. That's the, that's okay. the best I can do. You know, what? I have a 90-10 rule, 90% building up the black community and 10% fighting oppression, only when it intersects with my 90%. So oh. I don't give a lot of time to okay. any of the, what I call, Weapons of mass distraction, right? I don't give time to that, um, Carla. I don't give time to that.
1: Okay. I concentrate on
0: building up the children and their families so that they are an army that can wage against the machine on their own terms.
1: Oh, okay. That's helpful. I mean, maybe I'm... trying to bite off, and I'll use your your metaphor, the machine, maybe I'm trying to attack a machine that I just can't attack and that I need to kind of bring my scale down to something that's a little more manageable and something more kind of local. As opposed to having these kind of grandiose, large, systemic United States problems. It's going to be really what's happening in my backyard and community maybe. Exactly. And and, and my community went from Silicon Valley to the state of California Mm -hmm. to the nation. Okay.
0: So my work is national now, right? And people at the Institute, it was virtual. So people were from all over the country last week. And it is, um, yeah, it's measurable. You can see. The impact of a Black Education Network, uh, then, on um, at least the pockets of children that we
1: touch. Right, know, and that's what eat. I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's bringing it down to scale, right? Your ideal is national, but it's still small enough in scale, Deborah, because the finite number of young people that you touch. It's helping me maybe just kind of lower my blood pressure because I'm I'm always right. thinking about the federal government and no. and. States and counties, and I'm like, we can't, we can't, we can't continue the way we are. And people are looking at me like, what are you screaming about? And maybe it's like, I need to stop that scream. It's it's a local, finite, smaller conversation that I need to be having. So in closing, Deborah, what words of wisdom would you give my listeners, many of whom are educators, many of whom are researchers, many of whom are state and county rep- many of whom are folks like yourselves who are kind of working outside the system. What words of wisdom do you give folks who are, who are and I'm using air quotes, trying to dismantle this beast, right? Who are thinking that it can be changed. What what parting words would you give folks who are listening? I would just say
0: bloom where planted. Whatever professional development you are taking, you are getting, take that and apply it to your sphere of influence. That's yeah. what I would say to everybody.
1: Yeah, that's that's wonderful and i will i will take it myself cuz i think i've been um causing myself a lot of anxiety unnecessary anxiety right <laughs> tackle something that it's probably not possible to tackle mm-hmm. Ooh, so with that madam thank you so much for your time Deborah.
0: oh Carla, pleasure
1: this, is, this has been a
0: pleasure
1: i love talking to you <laughs> i know we always if, so to our listeners, um, I always do a prep call and when Deborah and I did our prep call, it was an hour and a half, Deborah. Right? We're chatting <laughs> for an hour and a half, so yes. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So keep doing your wonderful work out there in the Bay Area. And um again, thank you so much and we'll talk soon.
0: All right, take care. We're national now, a black education <laughs> network. I've been for Ace.org. Follow us. <laughs> take care, Deborah. All right, bye bye. Bye bye.
1: Thank you for listening. Schooled with Carla Hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.